welcome. I am so glad you're here. I'm your host, Meg Berryman, and you are listening to the Beyond Being Well podcast, a show dedicated to helping women leaders like you take your wellness journey to your wholeness journey and beyond. Join me as we explore relationships, work, money, health, and purpose, and interview the best of the best in women's empowerment so that you can love deeply, expand fully, and contribute to a better tomorrow. So let's get cozy, settle in, and dive straight into the magic. Hello and welcome to the show. Super glad that you're joining me today as we journey to winter here in the Southern Hemisphere. You might be able to hear the fire crackling behind me and I'm staring out the window, which is kind of like like a sleet type arrangement happening. Lots of fog and rain and it's just one of those days where being inside by the fire feels way better than being outside and kind of relates to the theme of today's podcast which is around visibility and using our voice and for the first six months of this year I felt really called to be sharing quite vocally you know what had been going on for me and about my work and now as we shift into winter and you know Game of Thrones finishes and we are in this transition I find myself having less and less to say and being okay with that I think we put so much pressure on ourselves to show up you know consistently um, even particularly online and I for one have been really examining my relationship with social media and the pressure that I put on myself to show up and mine my own experience for stories um when sometimes I just want to be quiet and not speak and that there is depth and richness in that as well. I'm really excited about going inward in preparing to launch my new website and the School for Sacred Social Leaders and um, two new retreats that I'm offering later in the year and I can't wait to share all of that with you but For now, I wanted to introduce our wonderful guest, Samantha Nolan-Smith, who I really wanted to bring on the show to explore this idea around visibility and expression. So Samantha is a feminist writer and visibility coach that supports women to be more visible by releasing the social conditioning that keeps us hidden. She's the founder of the School of Visibility, and she's a mother and a yoga teacher and just an all-round warm and um, loving human who I just felt instantly connected to on the day that we recorded this podcast we both showed up wearing the same outfit and uh, it was a real meeting of the minds Samantha is nuanced and deep and considerate and what I really appreciate about her is that she goes beyond the surface of like mindfulness and well-being and expression and self-care and she really brings out the depth and nuance in that conversation that I feel like we all are kind of craving in this world of like dumbing things down to memes and things like that so I know you're going to love it as much as I did I um, hope that you stay cozy if you're here in the southern hemisphere and let's dive in with Samantha. Samantha Nolan-Smith welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Um, Samantha, I felt really called to um, reach out to you and invite you on this podcast. I've followed your work for a while on Instagram and we I feel connected to you over time and space, having spent a long time in Canberra as well. Um, but I wanted to start with this question that I ask all my guests and that is, what is the change you want to see in the world and what is the part you're playing within that? I love that question, Meg. Uh, the change that I want to see in the world is I want all people to live free. I want everyone to be existing in a state of liberation. And what I mean by that is I want all people, and I work with women so I have a bit of a start with women and then expand out kind of approach to my work. Uh, but I want to see us as people who are fully expressed, who are fully embodied in our, you can, you can use different language here, in our highest potential, in our divine essence, in the full expression of of what is possible as a human being. And the role that I have been moving into, I mean, obviously these are the kinds of roles that you, your whole life uh, prepares you for, but the role that certainly has become clearer to me over the last few years has been the role of really teaching and showing to people how oppression, systems of oppression have been internalised and, and highlighting to them that we are the system, if you like, that, that we, the system lives within us and until or the, the, the multiplicity of systems of oppression, by which I mean patriarchy, white supremacy, et cetera, ableism, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and that until we are willing to do the work to see that we, we are maintaining the systems consciously and unconsciously, no one, and I mean nobody, will be free on the planet, even those who are presumed to benefit from those systems. My perspective on that is that nobody, there are certainly people who are more damaged by the systems than others, but nobody is able to benefit in the sense that I just spoke about uh, in the way that nobody is able to be fully free in that without having done that work. So that's what I do within the context of, because that's quite large and it, it, not everybody's walking around talking about things in this way, I, I do it through the School of Visibility and I talk to women first and foremost about being seen and heard and speaking up in the world and that's my avenue or my tool for uh, for which to and through which I have these sort of broader conversations about internalised oppression. I'm just taking a moment for that to sink in because it, it honestly I had this moment today um, I had to share, Samantha, where I was running a, a training and, you know, when you feel like some days you're the only person in the world that thinks and feels and is talking about these things. <laughs> and so I just had this moment when you were talking of like, 
so grateful for my intuitive self for reaching out to you because I think what I'm sensing and what I'm really drawn to with your work and other people's work um, in the world right now is is the depth of it and the not shying away or bypassing the truth. And I um, adopt the exact same lens in my work when I'm talking about marrying spiritual practice with social leadership and how it absolutely has to start and end with liberation of self and empowerment of self and um I just I just really wanted to express my gratitude for you speaking to it so eloquently and sharing it um and then articulating that the school is the way in which you're tackling that and so I wanted to go there and and ask I guess how you came to that work around visibility as a pathway to liberation and Mm. did that come from your own wounding or your own challenge I'd just love to hear some of that journey in whatever way you feel um, drawn to share Mm, absolutely Uh, certainly the the I guess the first thing that comes to mind to share is that the school really came out of being at a conference in America, I was a guest of um, Chris Gillibo, who's a an entrepreneur in the States, who had asked me to come over um, to his World Domination Summit. And there was something in that invitation which was very in flow and it was like suddenly the, there was this calling, come over, we've got some something for you here. And so I just went and I was sitting in that conference one day and one of the one of the um, speakers said, now I'm going to invite you all to close your eyes and just really feel into what's coming next for you. And to set the scene for this, this was just before the presidential election in the United States. So speaking up was a huge issue because we had Hillary Clinton, we had Donald Trump, you know, the whole of America was completely beside themselves at this particular point in time. It was probably about four months before the election. And kind of the environment that I was in. And they said, just feel into what is, what's the big purpose? What's your really big purpose? And I'd already done low, you know, I'd been doing personal development work for 20 years by that point. So I'd done lots of life purpose stuff and, and, you know, many, many things over the years. And all of a sudden I just got this voice in my head that said, make the visible, make the invisible visible. And it was so clear. It was literally one of those moments that you always think you're going to have and you never do, (laughs) where it was like the light bulb came down and said, make the invisible visible. And I didn't have a clue really what that meant. I mean, I didn't even really try to understand it initially. I just burst into tears because I could feel the weight or the I could I felt multi, all at the same time I felt relieved because I suddenly knew women were finally ready they were ready to speak up there was going to be some major things that were about to happen in the world I could feel all of this in my body simultaneously and and finally the work that I was here to do I had done all of my preparatory work which had been you know years and years and years and years of social justice personal development etc cetera, etc cetera, all which came out of my own wounding which I'm perfectly happy to talk about uh, if you want to go there um, but 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 this was the point at which I suddenly realized oh finally 
it's about to all kick off. And, and so I burst into tears in this conference and I just said, okay, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever that means, I say yes. And so that was when I, I finished that conference. I had set myself, I had set myself a few days to go to an ashram uh, before I came back to Australia. I, I was pregnant with my second child at the time, and I thought I just need a few days of chill before <laughs> the the chaos of baby number two comes into the world. And also, my my second child is a very, um, very still, very peaceful child. And I just he, throughout that whole pregnancy, he was kind of guiding me toward stillness and quiet even more than I had you know, already done for years as a yoga teacher, various other things. And so I, I went to this ashram and, and unbeknownst to me on those few days that I was there, they had invited a Swami from India to conduct a uh, divine feminine initiation, which had never been had never occurred outside of India before. And just by coincidence, which I say in inverted commas, I happened to be at the ashram in that moment and so went through that process. And so so I knew flying home from that, I knew this is about, this, this issue of visibility is huge. It's deeply connected to the feminine, the rising of the feminine. It's it's connected to women's voices, women's stories. It's connected to a, recreating a world where that, that, that is an expression of healthy masculine and healthy feminine integrated as one. And so all of that, of course, I couldn't hold all of that until I had done many, 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 many years of work on myself. And so, you know, long story short around that really was, it came out of wounding, absolutely. It came out of sexual trauma as a child and then as a teenager. It came out of being suicidal as a teenager and really uh, having 15 years of depression and anxiety and then really having to look for tools to clear all of that. And having this double life of having wounding, 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 having no language to talk about my my experiences, having no language to talk about depression even. I didn't even know what depression was really for a long time. That gave me such an insight into the significance of having words to express your experience and then having having compassionate ears to hear about that experience. And so much of that is, is informs the work I do around visibility and supporting women to be seen and heard. And then the final kind of component of that was that I was working in, I'd been working with Aboriginal communities across, across New South Wales and then across Australia for about a decade. I'd seen so much, um, I'd seen so much, harm that had been caused in this country as a consequence of of um, invasion and the theft of land and culture and people particularly. And so I had all of this sitting together while I was doing my own healing of my own wounds and so forth. And then I, I had found a way to heal from depression and then I got chronic fatigue. And I had chronic fatigue for four years where I'd literally spent most of the time laying around staring at white walls and 
that four years I talk about as my initiation into the feminine. It was the time where I really learned everything I'd done up to that point. I was very A-type personality. I'd, you know, gone to law school. I'd gone to gone into corporate law for a while. I realised corporate law was never going to be for me. I'd done all of the right things. I ticked all of the right boxes. And so on the surface, it looked like everything was going really well in my life. Underneath or internally, I was desperately trying to heal myself and work out why was I depressed because a lot of the trauma had been repressed uh, for a long time. So I had these two layers of visibility, the, the, the layer that everybody could see and then the layer that was hidden and which only I allowed myself, I, I would only allow myself to see. And even that, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even look at a lot of the wounding and a lot of the damage that was done. And and what was fueling me to keep going was the unhealthy masculine, as I call it, which is goal setting and pushing and working whatever hours it took and really ignoring my body, ignoring my intuitive guidance, uh, just just staying on the treadmill. And so those four years of chronic fatigue were absolutely the biggest gift that I could ever have have received in my life because that unraveled everything. And my nervous system was shot and I had to heal that. I had to I had to relearn really from going right back to being a baby who who didn't sleep well. I had to really learn how to be to feel safe in my body, to be in my body, to to rest into my body, to trust my body, and then to understand that all of this intuitive guidance that I'd been getting so um, clearly as a child, that um, how to allow that back in again. I'm just taking another moment because it is honestly like talking to myself <laughs> um, <laughs> down to like the four years of chronic fatigue the second child initiation, the, I just loved what you said about the layering that the personal development work created in order for the full vision to come through. And that, that's certainly been my experience in working through my own traumas and then getting to a point that I never thought would ever come where suddenly your system is receptive enough to hear it. And, I, and I've never heard anyone else talk to that in that way. And it's just really profound because it can feel so much like all of that work doesn't mean anything. And it can feel particularly isolating and individual in the pursuit of it. Um, and I think making it known that all of that scaffolding does create a platform to be able to step into, as I call it, leadership or feminine leadership or however you want to describe it, into full expression, that it is that it is important and it is doing something. Um, and even if we can't see the results. Um, so I just really wanted to thank you for saying it in that way. I'm really interested in so many of these aspects, but one that I wanted to talk about was in the women that I work with and also in myself, what I've noticed when it comes to putting voice to things, whether it's even speaking it to ourselves, which I imagine is a big part of your work, and speaking it externally, that there is a full biological, physiological reaction to that um, thought, even before we've even 
opened our mouths or put our pen to paper or whatever it is that we feel called to do. Are you able to, from your experience and and in working with women, but your own experience as well, speak to like what that reaction is and then how to work with it instead of bypassing it? Mm, mm, Such a beautiful question. So for me, a lot of the work I do is with uh, connecting women to understanding that, first of all, to know that the body, I, I use, just taught me which is the body never lies and so understanding that the mind is like google and the mind is going to find the answer that you want whatever the like whatever the question is it will find an answer for you it's very helpful like that but it isn't necessarily deep truth but the body stores deep truths within it because it stores both the mental activity but it also stores the soul And so understanding how to work with, one of the things that I do a lot with women is understanding how to hear the different voices of the being and then understanding, this is very subtle, but understanding the sequencing of that so that there can be thought, but before there's action, there's a a reaction in the body and the body will tell you the response or the deeper truth about how you feel about the thought. So let's take that out of the sort of esoteric into into a practical example. So I might be uh, I might be thinking, oh, a friend might say to me, "Do you want to come to the movies on Saturday?" And my thought is yes, but my body says, oh, and and the then the mind overrides that with its programming, which says you can't say no, you don't want to upset her, you've got to be a good friend, don't put yourself first, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of the programming, all of the conditioning that we've had as women to be what I call good girls or nice or or accommodating. But the body's telling you, this isn't right for me right now. Actually, on Saturday, what you need to do is sleep or you need to just rest or you need to be very still or very quiet. And we're so used to the mind or the the brain running the game that we don't and and there's actually a deep disrespect for bodily wisdom. And And my observation about that is that that goes part and parcel with patriarchal teaching because the body is connected to the feminine and all and and because there's a primacy of rationality and logic and reason these things rose as patriarchy took became more and more and more embedded as the way of thinking in the world and so as we break down patriarchal thinking, we break down our, we simultaneously are breaking down, whether we come at it through breaking down patriarchal conditioning or we come at it through coming to love our bodies, what we're doing is we're breaking down a system which disconnects us from body and soul. And so when we can, first of all, get the mind to trust the body, that's a huge thing. Some of the work that I do is around just taking women through processes to 
allow the mind to see one that it's not separate, that it's not isolated, that it's not, I'm using brain and mind so, um, in an interconnected way here. I really mean the brain because different people will use mind and they'll think of consciousness and so forth. But if you get the brain realizing that it's not isolated, it's not separate, it's not, uh, it's not supposed to do it all itself. And that actually it's clues are coming all the time from the body to, to indicate to the brain what, what its perspective is. And when you can then attune yourself to hear the way that the body works, the way that the body communicates, then you can get brain and body working together. And so what I do in my own work in every single aspect of my life, but this took me four years and is an ongoing thing, is whenever anything comes up, whether it's an invitation or when I sit down at my desk and I and I consider the things that I have told myself I'm going to do that day or what are the priorities, I do not take a step without first consulting the wisdom of the body because I know that it will guide me toward the fastest, the most efficient, the most aligned way of, of approaching my life and my work, my parenting, everything. And so first I check in with the body. If the body is in disharmony in some way, if there's emotion there that, that is hanging out that needs resolution, maybe the emotion is anxiety or stress or frustration or whatever it is, I deal with that attend to the emotional realm I attend to the because the emotions are playing out interacting with affecting the cells in my body and I know I know this from the, the healing work that I've done so I attend to that first I get myself into what I call into alignment where all parts of the being are in alignment and then I take action and my experience of doing this and being and this being my way of being now for over a decade is that this is how you stay in flow and flow looks different to every person. But what that enables you to do is to show up incredibly authentically to always have the words that are appropriate for that conversation without necessarily having pre thought that through. So when I was a student and then when I was a lawyer, it was all about, you know, um, really doing a lot of research, really not really trusting that, that the right words would come through. So practicing, practicing, practicing before I would do any kind of um, cross-examination of a, of a witness or any kind of meeting with a client or whatever it was, there would be a lot of time-consuming work done to make sure that I felt comfortable, that I was prepared. But once I moved into this way of being that I've just spoken about, I have cut down that kind of thing by 99% because, because I can access deeper wisdom now, because, I, because I'm in a, in a place of trust, because I'm not just operating from the brain, I'm operating from the fullness of my being and the fullness of my being has access to way more wisdom than my poor old brain has. So that's my, that's my experience of the 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 mind-body connection, if you like. Mm. It's um, that practice of like checking in with the whole self before working. It's, um, it's such a, 
a good reminder um, in the reprogramming of self, but that reprogramming of our own nervous systems and our own um, behaviours in a way really does create change outside as well because, as you say, we're liberating ourselves from the idea that our bodies are just productive units and they're either in the way and so we have to get rid of them or they're sending us like misguided information which neither is true so I think that's a really nice reminder and I love how you're talking about visibility as um, an access point to it through the body because I think that the somatic work is so important and sometimes lost when you know you, you see on Facebook whatever people teaching speaking or um or visibility through that much more intellectual lens as a skill you can learn as opposed to a um as opposed to a place you can be embodied in so exactly yeah it's why I always talk about visibility as being seen and heard and really it's a beingness that so what sits underneath that is is a beingness and I and from time to time I get concerned I'm like do people think I'm just like helping them get more Facebook followers because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not <laughs> it's but interesting this... but that's a byproduct is I mean because when you're accessing these deeper realms you speak with a different resonance and therefore you attract a different you, you do attract um energetically in a different way to then when you're not accessing those deeper parts of self absolutely mm. absolutely yeah, it's a it's the the thing that I speak a lot about as well is this this really what the journey of visibility is the journey of seeing seeing self seeing others and then allowing self to be seen and allowing others to be seen and you can't get into that place of allowing if you're not in a place of beingness mm. because it's the beingness that enables the allowing and the allowing is a part of the feminine the feminine that's one of her greatest teachings is the teaching of allowing and it's a misunderstood teaching I think a lot of the time or it's a it's one that people resist because they think that it just means like in the feminist context for example they're saying well what should I just allow men to be you know misogynistic or this or that and yes not all men um and that's not that's that's where feminism I think to do uh, matura- maturation work to do. It's it's moving from I have the right to be seen and heard to I am fully embodied in as a feminine essence integrated with a masculine essence and I am allowing myself to be seen as that powerful on the planet. That is a very different story to the the general feminist narrative. But to me, this is where feminism is moving to and and the women's empowerment space, which doesn't necessarily always identify itself as the feminist space, is really leading the is re, really leading the charge on that, I think. Mm, I agree. And I think it's a tremendously exciting time to be seeing the you know, particularly through the work of intersectional feminism and and also, as you said, women's empowerment, 
um, and also, you know, women of colour and, and what they're sharing in terms of social justice and liberation, I think that there's this incredible um, power behind this new, whatever, new feminist, whatever you want to call it, that is bringing together our generation's um, skills in terms of self-awareness with these deeper ideologies and it's just I think it's really exciting (laughs) the nerdy part of me thinks it's tremendously exciting and just on that I wanted to ask something that I I see in my experience a lot is talking you know in this context about social leadership and and I'll ask women to check in with their bodies and and I would say Samantha like seven times out of ten the biggest block to that or the place in their bodies where they feel the most resistance to them stepping into that space, either through self-empowerment work or through their work in the world, is is in the throat chakra, is, is, a, is an expression block, is how they would describe it, or that's where they would describe sensation. And I just wonder, from your experience, whether you could speak to why why you think that's the case from all of your work in the world and then you know some of the ways that women can start to work with the with the self to um start to unblock it whatever you want to call it start to um allow the energy to flow a little more freely both in speaking truth to self and being able to communicate a message more broadly which at this point in time in the world is really important Mm, mm. So for me, the really important thing to remember is if you look at it, say, from a chakra perspective, the throat, the the centre of expression is deeply connected to the sacral, which Mm. is the centre of sexuality and emotional fluidity and emotional honesty and, and relationship. And so the the block that I see in the throat if you want to talk about a gendered block, which I'm, I'll talk about at that level first of all, there's a gendered block at the throat because there's a gendered wounding at the sacral area. And so one of the things that's really important to um, recognise, things that I'm talking, trying to talk more and more with my students about now is recognising that, yes, there are individual uh, there are individual experiences and there are individual ways of, of uh, experiencing going through the world, obviously, and it's really important to do the healing work on those wounds. And there's a whole nother layer of wounding which you are hooked into by virtue of your identity, by virtue of whatever you identify with, whatever the complexity of that identity is. And that's, I agree with you, I love intersectional feminism for that reason because it doesn't, it, it, it finally has everybody in the tent, uh, that whatever aspects of your identity you are you are conscious of, or even those you're not conscious of but are there, there are wounding, there's wounding there that you would be unconsciously, maybe consciously, hooked into. And one of those woundings is the huge wounding of the of the sacral area as a consequence of the extraordinary levels of sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual violence. So that's one one layer to it. Can I just ask on that before you go on? There's the layer of 
Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say with that. So is that just in terms of being able to put it really, really blunt, bluntly, is it almost like those two wounds being you you must never tell anyone, right? Like it's like the, a silencing of that sexual trauma. That's what you, you're articulating. So there's a so there's a couple of different things. There's this there's don't you tell. There's be ashamed of your menstrual mm. cycles. There's be ashamed of your reproductive systems. There's be ashamed of your bodies. All of that sits in in there, and we've received explicit language about we don't want to know about that. That's not to come into the public realm. That's not to come into um, the public space at all. That's a private thing. You keep it in the home. You don't talk to it. You don't talk about it publicly. That's why there's you know, things like the Me Too movement, but even women speaking up about menstruation is revolutionary. I mean, it literally, I'm not, I'm not overstating that. It's completely revolutionary for women to openly speak about the, the functioning of the female body and, and to, and to unashamedly uh, take up space around that. And then that, that's the next piece of it, which is this piece around, we have been taught not to take up space. We have been told that we don't belong in the public realm, that we belong in the home, that our voices don't matter, that our opinions are irrelevant, and that our, and that our stories aren't important. And so all of this is a closing down of the throat. It's a, it's a, and it's a swallowing it's a physical swallowing of our words, which then gets clogged there because what accompanies that is grief and what accompanies that is rage and what accompanies that is just incredible sense of injustice, which then we're told, well, women women don't feel those things. They shouldn't feel those things. It's inappropriate as a woman to feel those things. And so we've got all of these things combining to mean to get us to a point where what has happened in women's conversation is that we've been allowed to talk about things that don't actually influence, aren't powerful. So we've been allowed to talk about our appearance and we've been allowed to talk about uh, clothes and hairstyles and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But but there is nothing more dangerous to the patriarchal mindset than a woman who is willing to speak up cleanly and plainly and tell her story mm. and speak truthfully about her story because it that story will inevitably challenge a patriarchal a patriarchal environment inevitably so so these things go together and it's very important i think to to appreciate that they do that talking there's a there's a type of talking that comes from the throat and particularly if if um, people understand the chakra system that's about speaking universal truths. So we can speak and we can fritter away our words or we can speak through our throat in a clean and healthy way and that requires the healing of those other aspects that I spoke about. And once we have healed those, then when we speak, we speak with incredible resonance and we speak with power. And then it doesn't matter then if your audience is one or one million, you will change lives by virtue of opening your mouth and speaking. So that's the that's the throat 
that I hope that goes some way mm. to just to answering your question about why the throat. Um, but I just there's something that I think is really important to to understand it at a different level, which is even women's voices are considered unacceptable in the societies that we live in. And you see that when women stand for for positions of power in politics. And because they're so visible and they're kind of they're they're a really good case study of of how power responds because they're moving into the most powerful on some levels powerful positions in society. And what we have invariably seen is that the the minute that women speak, we are told society responds by saying we don't even like her voice. So we saw that in Australia with Julia Gillard, loads and loads of they had to say about her was that they hated her voice. They hated her accent. People said the same thing about uh, Margaret Thatcher. They said, she's shrill. That was a really common one, shrill. That exact same thing was said about Hillary Clinton. She's shrill. We don't like her voice. How uh, There's these horrible um, quotes from men saying that they wouldn't care about Hillary being the leader except for the fact that they would have to hear her voice for, for four years. Now, when women hear this... What what is it going to do to us? Of course, it's going to make us think, "Oh, my voice is unacceptable." Not only, not only have I have to overcome fears about my story being uh, irrelevant or not important, but I now have to even think about the way my voice sounds because apparently it's not deep enough mm. and therefore, and it's not authoritative enough. It's definitely not a leader's voice, and therefore. Who would want to hear me? So so you can see how this whole visibility issue, I mean, it's completely fraught. It's got so many layers to it and so much messaging around it. And for women to then start to unpack that, that's that's really where that's really the work that I that I do at the School of Visibility is helping people first of all to see the narrative. So whether that's the narrative of your individual story about what is and what isn't acceptable in terms of the way you show up in the world, in terms of the way you look, in terms of the type of career you have, in terms of uh, how you parent your children, or it's the narrative of what's expected of women in society and what's not allowed for women in society. Once you can start to see the narratives and and then you're willing to see how they're affecting your behaviour and how they're limiting your behaviour, then you're you're kind of 85% of the way there at that point because awareness is one of the most important tools that we have. And that's what I love about the time that we live in is that light is being shone all over the place on the the condition, the experience of women. And the more that, that women speak up, individual women speak up, the more that other women feel encouraged to speak up. And then suddenly these lights go on where Me Too is the perfect example, where suddenly all these women turn around and went, oh, I just thought it was me. Oh, I just thought it was me. I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed. And now I'm not ashamed at all because I realise every single woman on the planet just about has had this experience and it's not personal. It's my, it's a gendered wounding that's taking place here. But seeing that took thousands of women speaking up in order to, 
in order to have a big enough voice to counteract the dominant narrative, which was this is just some individual women, a lot of those women are just complainers, they're caused their trouble troublemakers, they're it wasn't as bad as they think it is. You're imagining it, men don't do these things, good men never do these things, blah, blah, blah. So so being able to see the truth is vitally, vitally important. And then learning the tools, whatever those tools might be, and you know, obviously I, I teach certain tools, but honestly, because we've been through this consciousness revolution since we're really kicked off in the 60s and gone on from there in leaps and bounds, we have so many tools, personal development tools available to us now to help us to to change the story, the inner story, and the story that we're all carrying in our being. And my dream, my vision is that if we get enough women to change the story around what it is to be woman, around who we are as women in the world, around what's possible for us, by doing the inner work as well as taking action in the world, and I'm certainly not one for one or the other, I'm one for do both and and go at it at every single angle possible, Uh, then we can truly transform the world. I really believe that's possible and I believe that this is the train that we're all on now and it's it's inevitable that we will get there. Uh, just as you were describing all those micro aggressions that you experience in terms of voice from such a young age, you know, I was just playing that movie in my head of not only all the times I've experienced that, but the times that the women in my circle have experienced, just even the micro things like people turning away, like body language and, you know, people at that kind of erasure or that um, not listening, you know, all of those things and just seeing as you're talking the profound impact that has on your system and how you then go on to feel safe in the world in your expression. Exactly. And this is why so many women have been called to hold circle now. I'm certain of it because we're all having to see the truth of the world that we live in. And and certainly the women that I work with will often get really angry for a period of time, yeah. rightfully <laughs> so. And and you have to have someone who can hold that, yes. not somebody who feels afraid of their emotions or feels like they have to suppress their anger, but who recognises the transformational power of anger. Mm. Yeah. And, and and moving from victimhood to anger is a huge step in the in the direction of liberation. I agree. Sacred rage has a very important place. It's interesting you mentioned circle because it's there. Uh, there's two questions I, I have before we finish. Um, when I was at university in my undergrad degree, and I remember seeing the women's only space as like, and I remember standing out of the outside the door. And feeling the power of women's only spaces at that age, you know, at 18 and having been brought up in an alternative education system and like my parents homeschooling me and, and seeing Circle created without being conscious of what it was, I knew looking at that, that it was power, that room was powerful and therefore dangerous at the same time. Mm. And, you know, all these years later now running Circle, but what I'm interested more in is 
how to take those principles out into the world when, yes, it feels very safe to heal relational wounds in circle, but I'm also interested in in my work at the moment how to take that beyond circle because I really believe that we can use those spaces and tools and all the spiritual things that we carry in our backpack to stay still stay hidden if you know what I mean like it's still absolutely yeah and I'm just wondering your thoughts on how we take how we take it beyond circle is it about finding safe places outside or is it about dealing with the discomfort in our body when we do speak and aren't met in the way that we would like to be heard I think it's I think circle is hugely important because I think that provides the the foundation I think you have to have a safe place so in in yogic terms you have to have the sangha you have Mm -hmm. to have the community that you come back to that helps you to um, reconnect to remember who you are to remember your power etc etc but the circle can't be the end point the circle has to be the beginning point so for me this the circle is the bouncing off point so to speak so you you join the circle you do the work that you need to do in order to be able to be functional and really effective in the world and then this if that circle doesn't empower you to do that then you have to move to a different circle you have to move to a circle where you're held in that consciousness in that in that awareness but you're only tapping in and out of it. So you're you're taking action in the world as this fully, what I call fully embodied woman who absolutely comes into the world in a, from a very different place, a very different type of consciousness, but she's taking action. So, so the circles uh, or the work that I do is one of the ways that I do it, I think that's really useful for all circle holders is that with my community, when they come into, I have a program, a visible woman, which is a mastermind program. They come in with a project. It's a, it's a visibility and leadership project, which is about being out in the world. It's got nothing to do. It doesn't have nothing to do. It's deeply connected to, but it's not about doing something for the circle. It's about doing something in your, whatever your purpose is, whatever you're here to do on the planet, it's about taking that action out in the world. And so what, so part of, I think, what circles, uh, where circles can go from here is that there will always be circles where it just has to be a closed circle. It just Mm. has to be about healing. It has to be about being seen and heard in that space. But then there must be other circles which are about, the world we will provide a safe space for you to come back to come in and out of so go and do the work in the world come back and tell us about it tell Mm -hmm. us about what worked well what didn't work well we'll see what needs clearing what's what's still blocked there that that so it has to be this integration of the real really practical with the healing the the spiritual whatever other elements you've got in the circle and i think that because when i one of the things that i did was that i um you know spent a lot of time post it was really ardent feminist at university i spent a lot of time in social justice after that and then i moved after getting chronic fatigue i moved into running my own business and i spent 
the next eight years or so working with spiritual women, in inverted commas, women who were identified as spiritual in some way. And what I saw in that space was, and probably the thing that I found most frustrating, was women hiding out Mm. by doing more and more internal work but not actually taking action in the world. Part of what I realised was there was a huge visibility block there because there's a huge witch wound, there's a huge wound around um, alternative therapies, there's a huge wound around the personal development realm not being seen as legitimate. So there's a big thing that needs clearing there. Um, but, But what also... Uh, was missing was this understanding of how to integrate masculine and feminine, how to integrate action with passivity, with goal setting, with intuitive guidance, how to marry rationality with emotion. And and so this, I think, is this next phase we're in now. And I think we're going to see much more action taking in the world but but a different type of action taking and i and i think that this has been essential to take it in this path because i know that or, or in this sequence because i know for myself if i had tried to take action when i wasn't deeply embodied in the feminine i wasn't deeply anchored i want to use that word instead deeply anchored in the feminine i would have just gone back to old unhealthy masculine habits mm-hmm. i would have just gone back to push 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 but once I had really deeply anchored into the feminine to the point of which I'd basically thrown out all masculine approaches entirely and then I'd got to the point where I was like, well, now I need some some structure, I need some systems, I need something to support me, I could go at that and get those from a very different place. But they had to be, I had to be first of all very much in the feminine and and looking to the masculine from that place. And that took a long time to get to that point. So I I don't feel concerned about circles um, creating these spaces for women. I just think that uh, there's a new type of circle evolving, which is the integrated circle, if you like, which is action-taking and and deep uh, connection and still the healing work going on because the healing work's going to go on for many, many years yet. Uh, and, and being able to go back and forth in that way, I think is, is where we're moving to. Certainly that's where, where I, the work that I do. Yeah. And ditto, you know, in the school, in my school, it's exactly the same as we do the self empowerment work for social leadership. And so it's going out and then hitting hitting a challenge point and instead of that challenge point completely derailing um efforts it's there's a space to 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 go into that work to go into that sensation or whatever it is that's coming up and and transmute it I guess and it's really nice to hear you speak about the same kind of thing you mentioned um briefly in passing about parenting and I want to finish up there because I believe parenting is a pathway not only to consciousness but um to social leadership and to seeing in all its glory where in our expression we're blocked and where it comes from (laughs) because there's nothing like having a three-year-old fully expressed to bring up your own triggers um, around where you were not or where you were shamed for expressing and I just wonder whether you could speak to those of us on on say an aware parenting conscious parenting path how can we support this in our young girls but our young boys as well 
uh, young people um, to be something that potentially they don't have to work through when they're our age, that we can set up the conditions for expression and for visibility from, you know, the get-go. And, and I wonder whether, you know, through your own experience or what you teach, you could share your thoughts on that. Mm, absolutely. The So I have a seven-year-old girl and I have a two-year-old boy. And in some ways I parent them very similarly and in some ways I'm very conscious of parenting them in a differently, not just because of the age gap, I don't mean that, because of the gender difference and because of uh, what they experience as they go out into the world because I, much as I might like to at times, I can't cocoon them in my own little home. And so, so for my daughter, so much of my parenting is focused on validating her voice and, and really being very, very present to hearing her and giving her the space to know that that her opinions matter and that her experience is is hugely important to the planet and giving her a sense so I spend a lot of time giving her encouraging a sense of purposeful purposefulness and a sense of power personal power and then what I do with my son is that I spend a lot of time validating his emotions so I'm very conscious about doing that because I know that he's going to go into a world where where he his emotions aren't as validated, where he's told not to – he's not going to be told that by his parents, but, but invariably on some level he'll be told, taught that men don't feel their emotions or that they, they, it's not masculine to be connected to them, et cetera, et cetera. And so I spend a lot of time really holding him in a place of – of allowing his emotions and really respecting and understanding his emotions and working with his emotions. That doesn't mean I don't do that with my daughter. I absolutely do. But, but I, but I equally am aware that she's probably going to get more permission to feel her emotions than he is going to get. And so I'm just very conscious of trying to balance out a little bit of the social conditioning that they are going to come across. And then I use one of the techniques that are one of the tools that I use in my work and that I teach my students is um, and share with my students is, is called compassion key. And compassion key is a very, there's a, you know, there's a whole lot to it, but, but in its simplest form, it's recognizing the circumstances that another person is going through or what our wounded self is going through and simply saying, giving ourselves compassion for that and saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that's happening to you. And so it's healing through self-compassion. And so I teach that to both of them because what I have found by using that technique is that the compassion, the energy of compassion heals, but it's the energy of being seen mm. that's really important. And so when you say to your wounded self, I see you, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. I see this is your experience right now. The whole body, the whole nervous system just goes, oh, thank God I'm seen. I'm fine. Somebody sees me and, and witnesses my experience. And this is so fundamental to the human condition that we are witnessed in our lived experience as human beings. So I think that that visibility practice of just saying, I see you, I hear you, is 
something we can all bring into parenting. I think it's hugely important. I will often say to my children, I'm so sorry you're so frustrated. I'm so sorry because they're, particularly my two-year-old isn't old enough to apply self-compassion yet. I teach my my older, my daughter, I teach her self-compassion and, and, and I use lots of different healing tools with her. Uh, but But one of them that she's starting to understand now is the ability to witness her own experience and to recognise that uh, she can heal herself. So this obviously depends on the age of your children and, it, and you know, you, you take it step by step. But when a child feels uh, that they have been seen, that they have been heard, you see how relaxed they suddenly become. They're like, ah, oh, okay. I'm, it's like a legitimacy. I'm, I'm a legitimate being on this planet. I have experiences that others have acknowledged and they then are, can thrive from that place. It's when they feel like mummy doesn't understand me, daddy doesn't understand me, they don't listen to me, my perspective isn't valued, my I don't get a say here. And this doesn't mean they don't get any boundaries set around them, absolutely not. Boundaries are huge. they understand their legitimacy and and to me that's the real that's one of the real gifts that that visibility practices can give to children oh I love how you talk about that it's just really like my whole heart is opening just hearing you speak in that way um so thank you for sharing those thoughts I just wanted to um pose maybe a question to finish up around Having done all this work, I wonder whether there's also a place, particularly women in my position or in privileged positions, where part of using our voice and expressing is also knowing when not to speak and when to step aside or let others be heard. And I just wonder whether that's also something you teach or you bring consciousness to um, particularly I'm seeing all the ways at the moment that I'm speaking when I don't need to and it's just been a really humbling experience for myself but also others to call that out and be like is it I'm asking myself these days like is it necessary do you have something to add here or or can I just not speak is that something that you have an opinion on or that you've um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I love, I love, love, love that you brought this up. Uh, yes, I have strong opinions on it, uh, but they come from, they honestly come from speaking too much myself. So, mm. so as a uh, non-indigenous woman working with Aboriginal communities through my twenties and thirties, I learned the power of listening from Aboriginal people. And I learned the power, I, and I often say this now to my students, that if you want to speak with resonance, because that's what they come to me and they say, I want to be resonant, like I, I want my voice to be heard and really connect with people. And I say, well, learn to listen. If you learn to listen, you will learn to speak. And, and I learned that because I distinctly remember very early in my time in um, working with Aboriginal communities, I went to a meeting with um, 
with the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council and I was there with the councillors and I was speaking about, I had been working on a, on a place management um, handover of some land in Western New South Wales and it was incredibly complex and there were the community community was divided and so there were different aspects of the community um, warring against one another about the land within the Indigenous community plus then there was the fighting again with the non-Indigenous community as well. So it was all this stuff going on and I had been day in, day out, deeply, deeply immersed in this and then I went to what I thought I was doing which was to brief the councillors about it. And I went in without really they I hadn't gone through any cultural awareness training. I didn't I I just didn't I didn't know where I was, is the way I put it now. And I didn't understand the deep connections that were already there between this community and and the councillors at the table, and particularly a number a, a couple of the councillors. And so I went in and I briefed the way I used to brief in corporate law, where I just assumed that the people at the table uh, were kind of removed from the situation and wanted the full update and then um, and then would decide what to do about it. So I went in very white girl, very white approach and talk, 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 this is this and this and this and this. And what I that I thought I had done an okay job because I still had the white lens on. And I walked out of that meeting and I was told by a colleague that after I had left, uh, they had the counsellors had said, boy, she talks a lot. And I was humiliated. I was so, I, rem, the, I mean, the shame just went from my toes <laughs> all the way to my head. It was horrible. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? And it was a moment of realising you didn't know where you were. You didn't you didn't respect the people because you didn't realize that that there's a different way of doing business here. And and you know, over the years I came to obviously understand that much in a much much deeper way and, and I had much greater understanding of it. But what I what I fundamentally learned from that was you you came in with a confidence that was actually disrespectful. It was a confidence that you had learned from white culture about that's entitled, that is privileged, that assumes that if I'm in the room, then I, ha I have a right to speak. But you didn't pay the same respect to the other people. You didn't stop and say, am I giving you too much information? Am I, am I like, you didn't ask in advance who these people were, what their connection already was to this community. You, you just, you should have just, Sit, sat there and been stop being so eager to prove yourself and instead recognize that you were there to learn and over a decade that's what I learned time and time and time again from Aboriginal communities was that I they were teaching me and I was deeply the privilege was the privilege of actually being taught how to listen how to be how to see other people's experiences that were very different to my own and not feel like I have to fix that, but actually just to be there standing alongside and holding hands or just being there as a support person if somebody wanted that. And, and so that broke down so much of my own 
white saviour staff. It broke down. You know, it was deeply uncomfortable. I'm not going to pretend this was fun. It wasn't. Um, there, there was so much conditioning that I that I learned um, that I had in my being that I wasn't even aware of. There was so much shame around uh, the ignorance of non-Indigenous Australians that I was a part of mm. uh, and ultimately what that taught me was to be very, very different in the way that I um, that I show up in a space. And I see this all the time in social justice spaces that, that white women, particularly I am seeing this in a lot of instances of white women, we just kind of walk into spaces. We don't realise that we don't understand the space we're in. We don't take the time to understand the space we're in. We don't, first of all, stop and listen and look and learn and, and, and understand our environment. We, we take our own uh, set of understanding about the world and we just impose it into other people's spaces. Yeah. And so this, this I, was, I feel very fortunate that I had people be very um, patient with me and, and I think that I was able to learn this in a very loving way and I feel very incredibly grateful that I had that um, that privilege of, of, of having that experience. But, but certainly the thing that it left me with is if you, if you are talking, if you were ever, um, speaking with any level of presumption about somebody else's experience, you're probably over speaking at that moment. (laughs) That's such a good way of saying it. Yes. (laughs) I always say, you know, like, how does it feel for you to receive unsolicited feedback? Like, how does it feel in your body when someone gives you unsolicited feedback or assumes <laughs> something about you? Like, it feels horrible. Nobody likes that. And I say that with so much love from and resonance with, like, deep body shame and resonance of your experience in your 20s. I was mirroring that but overseas, right? And so the white saviour ran deep and... I just remember being so young and being handed the microphone because I was ambitious and now I just look back and think just because you were handed it doesn't mean you had a right to speak, you know, and I think, yeah, and I think it's just that it's just that thing of, of where I'm being called to step up at the moment is really around setting very strong boundaries within my community, which some women don't like around feedback and around saving and around speaking and speaking for. Um, But I feel like, and that's uncomfortable for me because I'm having to, as you say, come into expression and a deeper alignment within myself and unpacking that. But I think safety has to be the number one priority and and awareness of like those spaces that we're either creating or as you say stepping into um so yeah I'm just nodding my head vigorously over here I think safety is the thing and and understanding that your words wound in even if you don't have the intention Mm. of wounding which most women will say but I didn't I didn't know or I didn't mean to wound and so on and so forth and men will say that as well lots and lots of men will say but I didn't know or I didn't I didn't understand and being able to get to the point of recognizing actually 
you are that powerful. You are, you, many, many women will be very willing to sit in the space of I have been wounded, but far fewer will sit in the space of I wound. Mm. And, and that is a part of the process of liberation. And when you can move through that and own that and take responsibility for it, for that, you are far, far closer to being truly free. I think, honestly, that's my definition of, of leadership these days is self-responsibility and leadership are kind of go hand in hand in my view. And I just, yeah, I really appreciate us going there and speaking to that because I think it's something that um, you can't talk about expression or visibility without so, Samantha, what I'm hearing from all of this is the deeply complex nature of the wounding that we have around visibility and expression and also the many pathways that we can use in order to start to work on that liberation within the self and then the impact of that going forward. I wonder if you can share with the audience where they can find you and more about your school and any invitations that you would like to extend before we finish up. Sure. So um, everything's at theschoolofvisibility.com, or one word, and we're on Instagram at the School of Visibility. We're on Facebook at the School of Visibility. Uh, and really, I think if you want to start on this journey, if you go onto the School of Visibility, we have um, a free resource, How to Speak Up in a Noisy World. That's that's a really great place to start because it just starts you thinking about the connection between all of the things we've spoken about, how to speak from the body as opposed to speaking from the mind, how to you get some free training there and then and then that starts you putting this lens on some of your lived experience, which is the lens of visibility. But you can also pick that up at theschoolofvisibility.com slash noisy world. Uh, so yeah, so that's where I am and I'm I'm quite regularly um showing up in those spaces because they're the places that I, I choose uh, with discernment to be seen and heard. And that's the final thing I probably would leave with everybody is that in a world of uh, infinite choices around visibility, it's really important, particularly if you work in the online space, but but it's important for everybody to to be discerning about where and how you you speak up and where and how you choose to be visible because otherwise you'll end up being burned out. So so exercising that discernment around these are the few places that I choose to speak up, these are the few places that I choose to be seen and in those places I will be fully expressed, that that's enough. You don't need to do more than that. Thank you for channeling that particular wisdom just for me today. <laughs> I appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's just been a wonderful conversation. I know listeners are going to get so much out of it. And um, I, yeah, I just look forward to seeing all the many, many women that um, are fortunate enough to work with you and what they go on to do in the world and, yeah, thank you for your work and for your humanity in that work as well. Mm, I'm right back at you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Samantha. 